0: Well, hi, everyone. My name is Wayne, and we're really glad that you're able to join us today. Um, If you were with us last week, our Pastor Andrew kicked off a new series in the letter to the Ephesians called God's Master Plan. And today we're going to continue that series as we look at uh, the first portion of this letter. But let's pray before we begin. Father, we give you thanks for this um, opportunity to worship you. Father, despite us being in different places, Uh, We are united in Christ. And so, Father, today, as we look at uh, what it means to be uh, your child, uh, what are the spiritual blessings that you have for us, may you encourage us uh, during this difficult time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage today uh, is from chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And this is quite a well-known passage to some of us. And it's perhaps one of the most deepest, uh, most profound passages in all of the Bible. In our English Bibles, if you're following along, uh, this passage is divided into five or six sentences. However, in the original Greek, uh, these 12 verses actually form one single sentence. Some say it's actually the longest sentence in the entirety of the Greek language. It's over 200 words. And it's a difficult sentence to translate because the grammar is actually really awkward. It's just one dependent clause after another. And what most scholars tell us is that while Paul was writing this letter, uh, he got carried away. The Apostle Paul, uh, he starts off in verse 3, and he's talking about the many blessings that we have in Christ. The blessing that we receive in Christ. And he gets so excited, so worked up about what he's saying that he couldn't even take a breath. And he just goes off worshiping God in one long run-on sentence. Clause after clause after clause of worship. Because he's so excited, so moved by the blessings that God has for us in Christ. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. Uh, This passage is really rich. Uh, There's so much in here that you can easily spend three or four sermons just looking at this passage Uh, but today we'll only have time to look at some highlights and so we'll be focusing on three points uh, three blessings first we are chosen by the father second we are redeemed by the son and finally and lastly we are sealed by the spirit so first chosen by the father The first thing Paul tells us is that as Christians, we are chosen by God the Father. In verse 4 to 5, it says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He goes on in verse 11, And it says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but uh, a long time ago there was a popular Christian magazine, and this magazine was called Decision Magazine. Decision Magazine. It was produced by Billy Graham and his ministry. And uh, the message of the magazine has since changed, but for many years it published articles uh, calling its readers to make a decision to follow Jesus, to make a decision to become a Christian. It was a very evangelistic magazine, and for many Christians, there is an assumption that becoming a Christian just meant that making it was making a decision for Jesus. And so, my testimony testimonies were stories about when I decided to follow Jesus, when I decided to become a Christian. And yes, becoming a Christian does involve making a decision to believe, but actually, as we'll find out, it's much deeper than that. If you notice the verbs that Paul uses, uh, verse four, he says, For he chose us. Verse five, You predestined us. Verse 11, we were also chosen, having been predestined. And it's what the theologians call election or predestination that God chooses those whom he will save, that God chooses those who will become Christians. And what Paul points out here is that behind our decision for Christ, is God's decision for us. Behind our initiative for Christ is God's initiative with us. And before we ever made a move towards God ourselves, God actually made a move towards us first. And Paul's saying something really profound. He's saying when we look back at our testimonies, how we became Christians, we had a sense that Uh, we were rather active participants, right? We were the primary agents in coming to God and deciding to follow him. But what Paul says is it's actually not like that. Instead, for each and every one of us, God first chose us. Before we had even an inkling or a hint of God, he has already chosen us to be his children. And when does God make this choice? Paul says in verse 4, it's before the creation of the world. And if you think about this, it's kind of a strange idea because what this means is that well before we could merit it, well before we could perform for it, well before we could deserve it, God chose us. In other words, we become Christians only because God God chooses us. And this choice is by the sheer sovereign grace of God. Verse 5 goes on, and it says that God chooses us according to his pleasure and will. It's his pleasure to choose. He delights to choose. He wants to choose you and me. I think for many of us, when we come to this doctrine of election or predestination, it's really an issue that has caused a lot of controversy, a lot of argument, a lot of division. And one of the most common objections to this doctrine is this. It's not fair. It's just not fair. Why does God choose some people and not others? And This is a difficult question because ultimately we will never fully know the mind of God. But a partial answer to that is this. If we really want fairness, if I go before God and say, all I want is what is fair from you, what will we receive? If we get what's fair, we will all receive judgment and condemnation for our sins. That's what's fair. The book of Romans says in chapter six, for the wages of sin is death. That's what's fair to us. Because of our sins, we deserve the judgment and punishment of God. And we also know that when the Bible talks about people who don't believe, it doesn't say that it's because they aren't chosen or not elect. It says it's because they refuse to believe. Matthew 23, Jesus says, uh, and he's talking to the people of Israel, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I longed to gather you, children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus says the reason is not because I didn't choose you, if you notice, it says, I have longed for you, but he says, you were not willing. You were not willing. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher a long time ago, he tells a story of when he was sharing about this doctrine of election in a Bible study. And there was this woman, she was sitting in the back and she was just shaking her head the entire time. And you could tell she was just bothered by what Spurgeon was saying. After the Bible study, the the woman comes up to him and she says this. She says, I can't believe in that doctrine. I can't believe in a God who is like that. I cannot believe that God is going to keep all these people who are wanting to get into heaven out. I cannot believe that God will act in this way. How could God not save these poor, needy, helpless souls? And how could God do that? And this question makes sense, doesn't it? And this is how Spurgeon answers her. He says, you have misunderstood the situation. You're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven And men and women are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you. And you, but not you. And so this woman thinks of God kind of like a bouncer or security. And there's this long line of people waiting outside the door saying, can I get in? Can I get in? And he's looking and choosing people. You? you, you, but no, not you. That's what this woman is thinking. And Spurgeon says that this is actually not what God is like. And then he says this, rather God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men without exception are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in election, graciously reaches out and stops this one, and that one, and this one over here, and that one over there, and effectively draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. And finally, he says this, Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there. But it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place, and hell would be bursting at the seams. In almost every New Testament passage that talks about this doctrine of election, or predestination, it's not in a context of whether a debate of whether God is just or fair or not. It's always in the context of worship, of wonder, of celebration, of thankfulness. Because ultimately, the message of election is this. The message of election is there's nothing I could do in my sinful state to draw near to God and to choose him by myself. But God, in his mercy, reached out a hand to me. He chose me and rescued me. He saved me when I couldn't save myself. And even when I had no desire to be saved, God rescued me. And the Apostle Paul, of all people, he knew this, Paul knew that he was a Christian only because of God's choice. Paul knew that there was no other way he would be a Christian unless God took the initiative with him. If you remember, Paul was an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of God. He was out there actively persecuting Christians, giving his consent and approval when Christians were being killed for their faith. And Paul wasn't looking for Jesus He wasn't looking to believe in Jesus or Christianity. And he was the least likely person to ever become a Christian. Yet he believed because God reached out to him on that road to Damascus. Not because Paul was a good person, not because he did anything to deserve it, but because it was God's sovereign grace and his love for Paul. And if nothing gets across to you today, I hope that this gets across. God loves you and delights in you. You didn't just sneak in to God's kingdom. But God set his affection on you from before the creation of the world. And God has been at work to save you. And in a world full of people, God says your name And says, I choose you. And that blessing alone ought to give us such assurance and joy and stability in life. But it doesn't end there. And so secondly, we are also redeemed by the Son. We are redeemed by the Son. In verse 7 it says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The word redemption comes from the world of warfare in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when an army of a country comes into a conquered city, they would gather all the defeated captives and round them up, and actually ready to make these people slaves. And they would go through, person by person, one by one, And if they came across an important person or maybe someone who is very wealthy, that person would come with a price. They would go back to their home country, their people, and say, here's a price for that person if you would like to buy them back. And so they would buy back these important people, these valuable people. And this is the process called redemption, buying people back from slavery. The person buying them back is called the redeemer. The sum of money that was being paid was called the ransom. And so redemption, the concept of redemption, is the deliverance of someone by payment of a price. The deliverance of someone by payment of a price. And the Apostle Paul, he uses this concept of redemption to describe what Jesus has done for Christians, which assumes that we are enslaved and we actually need to be rescued. That's what the word redemption means. And the Bible says that we are enslaved to the power and the penalty of sin. That is to say, we do the things that we know are wrong and the things that are right, we don't do. And it keeps happening in our lives over and over and over, and we can't help ourselves. We are under the power of sin. And because of that, we are also deserving of the penalty of sin. We deserve God's judgment for the wrong that we have done, for the sins that we have. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. And this is why the gospel is good news. Christ, He comes. He dies and he redeems us through his blood. Jesus' death on the cross is our ransom. He pays for our freedom to deliver us out of slavery from sin and to grant us freedom from sin. But finally and thirdly, Paul goes on and he says that we are also sealed by the Spirit. We're also sealed by the Spirit. In verse 13 and 14, he says this, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believe, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says that when we hear the gospel and believe in him, we are given the Holy Spirit. And there's two things that the Spirit does when he comes to take residence in our hearts. The first thing he does is he seals. In ancient times, uh, many people, they couldn't read or write. And so when you wanted to mark your property, you couldn't just write your name on it because it didn't do any good if Many people couldn't read. So you had a seal that you could press into something. And if you owned an animal or a cow, uh, you could put your seal on this cow as a mark of ownership. And everyone would know that this cow belonged to you. And what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit is a mark of God's ownership. When someone belongs to God, he puts his spirit in him or her as a mark of his ownership of them, saying that this person belongs to me. A second thing the spirit does is he is a deposit and a guarantee. In ancient commercial transactions and even, even in uh, our society today, when you wanted to make a large purchase of something, a large purchase enough where you cannot make a cash transaction at the moment the deal is made. Uh, you be asked to make a deposit, uh, pay a down payment, a first deposit. And this is still true today, even uh, when you buy something significant like a house or a car, you put a down payment first. And it's the idea that when I give you this money, it is a promise of the money that is going to come later. The full amount is yet to come. But let me just give you this first amount as a deposit, as a guarantee that the full payment is coming later. And how it relates to us is this God has actually promised each one of us, each one of his children, each Christian, an inheritance. He promised us that you and I will be inheritors of the new heavens and new earth. It's going to belong to us. And Paul says in verse 10 that he's going to restore this world, this created order. He says, in Christ, God will bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. And as Christians, Paul says, we are actually inheritors. We are heirs of that. We as God's children are going to inherit a world where there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more death, no more sickness. It will belong to us. It's going to be a place where we will never have to seek God's presence because He will dwell with us, where we can see God with our very eyes. That is the inheritance that you and I have that you and I are promised as God's children. And what God says is, He he says, I'm going to make you a deposit. I'm going to give you a down payment. It's a prepayment that foreshadows that this inheritance is coming. And what is that prepayment? It is none other than God Himself through the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, my spirit in you is going to be a deposit, a guarantee that reminds you of all the goodness that is yet to come in the future. To give us the confidence that surely if I have received the spirit, if I have received this down payment, this guarantee, then so much more good is coming to me for sure. And the idea is when we experience the Holy Spirit in this life, uh, the fruit of love, joy, peace he brings into your life. When you experience these things, it's just a foretaste of what is to come. A foretaste of how much more in the new heavens and new earth the joy is going to be. How much more the peace will be how much more the love will be. And when the Holy Spirit gives you gifts for ministry and you experience the gifts of others in this life, maybe it's encouragement, teaching, administration, music, and you say those are such wonderful gifts. But that's just a foretaste. Wait until you see those gifts in the new heavens and new earth. When the Holy Spirit comes and he gives you a sense of God's protection, God's providence, and God's presence in your life, it's just a foretaste of the fullness of God's presence, of being in his immediate presence for all of eternity. Well, as we conclude, how we To respond to this amazing passage, I think first we're called to believe in Christ. And you might be thinking as you're watching, I I don't know if God chose me. How do you know? How do I know if God has chosen me? How do I know if Christ has redeemed me? How do I know if the Holy Spirit has sealed me? If you believe in the gospel. Verse 13 says, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. If you're worshiping with us today and you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, how great a salvation that is being offered to you today. Believe that God loves you. Believe that Christ has died and he has redeemed you. And believe that the Holy Spirit can come into your life and give you the guarantee of your future. Secondly, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are called to follow Paul and to marvel at Christ and wonder and praise that God would go to such lengths To save us, rejoice no matter what your circumstances are in life. Because Paul, when he's writing this, he's in prison. Paul's in prison when he's writing this. His circumstances are terrible. His body is in chains, yet his mind, his heart are free, and they're flying into the heavens in praise and worship of God. Living as a Christian doesn't begin by doing things for God. It begins by understanding and marveling at what God has done for you and for me. Know that the Father has set his delight on you. Know that he loves you. Know that the Son has redeemed you at the cost of his own blood at the cross. And know that the Spirit is in your heart guaranteeing your future, and that future is going to be glorious. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the amazing truth of this passage. And Father, we just wonder and marvel at your love for us, that you and your love chose us before the creation of this world, that you and your love sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf, as a ransom to set us free. And you, in your love, put the Holy Spirit in each of us who believe as a promise, as a guarantee that there is a glorious future to come. So, Father, as we live in these difficult times, encourage us with this truth, encourage us with your love, and remind us of your sovereign grace in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.